But we are starting the show with some more reaction to what was some very welcome news, especially to those who put on indoor events in this province. So effective October 25th, one day after the full vaccine requirement comes into effect, we'll be able to increase to 100 capacity at indoor sporting events, indoor concerts, theatres, movie theatres, dance and symphony events and some of the, the great arts and sports that we've been missing. That was Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking yesterday. Let's bring in Ashley Corcoran, Artistic Director at the Arts Club Theatre. Ashley, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. What does this mean for the Arts Club and the programs that you put on? This is thrilling news. Uh, Yesterday afternoon, a flurry of text messages and emails went around our organization. We're so happy about this. Um, We are launching back into our flagship theater uh, this November with Dolly Parton's Smoky Mountain Christmas Carol. So a big Christmas musical, as is a tradition, you know, every year, uh, many Vancouverites celebrate Christmas by coming to the Stanley Theater and seeing one of our Christmas musicals. And we weren't able to do that last year. We're able to do it now this year, and meaning that we can have 100% capacity is just so exciting to us because it means we can bring back our audience, our community, our artists. We can offer employment. Um, and so, it's, yeah, it's great news all around. And do, will it look the same then as far as, so, so talking about that particular uh, production, Dolly Parton's Smoky Mountain Christmas Carol, which I know a lot of people will want to take in if they can, <laughs> uh, that's going to be at the Stanley stage on Granville Street. So will it look the same or look similar to what it was like pre-pandemic? Um, it, it will look uh similar. Um, Of course, we're always following the safety protocols in terms of um, checking vaccine uh, certificates at the door. Um, Everyone will also be masked and of course um, everything will be sanitized. So we're still following the really important safety protocols to keep our community safe. Um, But I think it should feel the same kind of buzz and excitement of people coming together, sitting in the dark and sharing a story together and feeling those feelings of empathy and humor and compassion. I will say, maybe this is like a little bit of a sneak peek, that we have spent some time on our lobby, rejuvenating our lobby. So that will look a little bit different for people who are used to coming to seeing shows at the Stanley. We've spent some time during the pandemic giving it a a fresh look. Interesting. Oh, I was going to ask you, because with the the lifting yesterday as well of being able to walk around and mingle more, uh, anybody that's been to that venue or a lot of the Arts Club venues knows that if you get there a bit early, you can have a a drink or a snack and it is a lot of kind of walking around and mingling. Uh, So is that going to be happening as well? Yeah, that will be possible. Again, we'll be following the protocols that um, public health has listed. Um, But yes, you'll be able to get a drink at the bar, um, bring it to your seat like usual, and um, we'll be asking people to to keep their masks on as they're they're wandering around. But um, but yes, of course they can take it off when they're having their drink. Uh, you mentioned too about this being such great news that you'll be able to offer employment and bring people back. How has it been as far as not not only talking about people who are employed at the theater, but also the the actors and people uh, behind the scenes and and as far as uh, where did everybody kind of disperse? I would imagine some people qualified for help or how has it been during the past year and a half plus? It's definitely been a struggle. Um, The Arts Club programs year-round. So we'd already announced our next season and had artists lined up. So we actually have cancelled 23 productions over the last year and a half, which is 
a, a great amount. Um, and about 600 people have lost work, whether they're employees or contract artists. We're very lucky at the Arts Club that we're a recipient of the emergency wage subsidy, and that has helped us keep um, some of our, of our employees uh, on staff. Some of our employees, like our amazing front of house and our um, technicians and production staff, have been on layoffs, and that's been really a real struggle. And also, the artists that we work with are all freelance contractors, so many of them lost a year and a half work like within that first week in March of 2020. Many of them have been on CERB, but uh, I know that people are really anxious to getting back to what they are so talented at and so passionate about and creating live theatre for our Vancouver audiences. So we're really, really grateful for this step um, because we really, as a business, need 100% capacity to make our dollars and cents make work. Uh, We are a not-for-profit charity, so we're already, you know, everything is, we're very careful with how we spend our money, but um, the way we pay for what we do is bums and seats. And so without being able to have bums and seats last year and a half, it's been an incredible struggle for us. But we're see, we see the light at the end of the tunnel, uh, and we're very, very excited about this Christmas. And then there are four other shows planned at the Stanley um, right until next summer, and that's going to culminate in our production of Kinky Boots, the musical. Um, and then we'll have a whole other season lined up for next September on. It sounds amazing, and I, I can hear the the excitement in your voice gearing yeah. up and getting ready for this. I, I know there was some attempt back a, a few months ago as far as trying to put on one-person shows and reduced capacity, but I would imagine it's just, even though a great try to kind of keep the lights on and the doors open, that must have been very difficult. Yes, we, we at the Arts Club over the last year and a half have put on four different one-person shows, um, and we've also done a series of audio plays. We really wanted to keep a connection to our audience and keep that habit of going to the theatre happening. And also we really wanted to provide employment to both our staff and freelance artists. So we're very glad that we did that. But even at like the the lesser cost of doing a one-person show, right, like a much smaller scale, um, the capacity constraints still, every time we produced work, we knew we were going to lose money, but we were doing it to keep that engagement Um now that we're back at 100%, that's going to a capacity that's going to help us um, continue to be financially sustainable and thrive into the future. All right. And you gave us a, a sneak peek of what people can expect of the lobby. Can you tell us a little bit? The title doesn't really give it away, but for somebody that might be thinking about coming to check out Dolly Parton's Smoky Mountain Christmas Carol, what can you give us a, a bit of a sneak peek on what they can expect? Absolutely. So it is the Christmas Carol that we all know and love, um, but this version of it has been set in the Smoky Mountains, and it's a community uh, in the 1800s retelling the story together, reliving the story. And it is a musical, and all of the music is written by Dolly Parton, and it is the gorgeousness that you would expect by music from her. Um, Bobby Garcia is directing it, which we're really thrilled about, and David Adams is our Scrooge, and we're also really excited about that. Um, the band is on stage, which is something that I always love. I love seeing the musicians there right in front of me. Um, and yeah, the entire cast, it's an all Vancouver cast and they are just, you know, just the brightest and the best. And we're so excited to be working with them again. All right. Well, it's great to, to see things getting back and looking at full capacity and welcoming people back into those seats. Ashley, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Oh, thanks for having us. We we really appreciate it. Well, there could be some disruptions if you are somebody that uses Life Labs or if you're an employee of Life Labs. Members of the BC General Employees Union have issued a 72-hour strike notice to Life Labs. It was issued last night. The union represents about 1,550 Life Labs workers and says the strike notice comes after several months of negotiations. Well, here to talk a bit more about that is Stephanie. Stephanie Smith, president of the BC General Employees Union. Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jill. Uh, notice uh, this uh, comes after months of negotiations. So what, is, what are the issues here? Or what are the, the points, obviously, where the two sides are not on the same page? Well, I mean, honestly, it comes down to wages and to benefits. Um, you know, these, these life lab workers, they're healthcare professionals. They are an integral part of our healthcare system here in British Columbia. And this is an employer who came to the table at the beginning of bargaining wanting concessions. They wanted to reduce sick time, sick time in the middle of a pandemic and vacation time for these workers. Now, those concessions are off the table. But outstanding issues are they absolutely refuse to put a respectful wage proposal in front of our members. And how far apart are you? Uh, if, if, uh, you I mean, you could tell me the number or of the actual wage or how far apart are you with what's being offered and, and what you would like to see? Well, I mean, our goal ultimately, so these, these workers in Life Labs do exactly the same jobs as workers in hospital labs and in the public health care system. But on average, they're paid between 4.5% to 13.5% less than workers doing exactly the same jobs. They also have no pension plan. We've uh, wanting to enroll these workers in a targeted benefit pension plan that would provide some retirement um, security for these workers. And the employer is not interested. And so we've been in mediation. We've been at the table for months. Um, we took a strike vote in July to show the, the conviction of these workers to get a, a respectful deal. Uh, that was 90, 80, 98% in favor of job action. And unfortunately, um, we're at the position now where we have issued that 72-hour strike notice. Uh, has the role of Life Labs changed at all, do you think? Or have we seen the, the role that it plays during the pandemic? Has it become uh, a different, uh, a, the need for it? Has that become different as far as what's provided at Life Labs during this pandemic? Well, Life Labs does the majority of outpatient testing in British Columbia anyway. But of course, like in every sector of healthcare, the pandemic has just simply exacerbated the workload. So um, I'm a frequent user of Life Labs. <laughs> I go once a week and um, I see these workers running off their feet to provide the professional service that British Columbians are, are in need of. The staffing levels at Life Labs are in crisis, and it's because of that wage differential. It's because of the, the lack of uh, adequate benefits. Um, we know, for example, that some Life Lab centers on the island had to be closed temporarily because of staffing issues. And so, yes, COVID has definitely exacerbated the workload issues for Life Lab technicians, for everybody who works in that system. And all we're asking for is that the employer give a, a collective agreement to workers that recognizes their contribution to what we're all going through right now.
And not to suggest that this would work for everybody, but like you said, if the wages for, for doing these jobs in other settings are four and a half to 13 and a half percent more, what would stop people then from leaving Life Labs when we hear about so many vacancies in other healthcare settings, leaving Life Labs and going and working where there's the, are the higher wages? Absolutely nothing would stop them. And in fact, that's what happens. And that's why they're having an issue with both recruitment and retention. And, you know, every round of bargaining, you build on the previous round. And we know that that gap may not necessarily get closed in this round of bargaining. But certainly, we want to see the employer's intent to close that gap. Uh, How confident are you that something can be reached, some kind of agreement before that strike notice, uh, that 72 hours expires? Well, a lot can be accomplished in 72 hours. I mean, we issued the notice last night. It it comes into effect at 7 p.m. Friday uh, evening on October 22nd. We want to compel the employer to come back to the table. Let's get a deal that our members can ratify. And as I said, recognizes their contribution to the healthcare system in BC and provides those service for British Columbians. Uh, We've seen in other sectors, and even not during a pandemic, but uh, even just uh, for whatever reason, when we've seen the demand for for employees uh, is high, I'm thinking of places when we used to see in northern BC or northern Alberta, jobs that would would generally even be a minimum wage job were paying much higher because that was really the only way to attract and retain staff. Uh, Why do you think that's not happening in this case? Well, I, I honestly, Jill, I think that's a question you would have to ask the employer. You have to ask Life Labs. I mean, it is, this is endemic. I mean, when you have members doing exactly the same jobs in a private sector for-profit company versus, say, in the public sector, you're always going to see that, unfortunately, unfortunately, profits are put before the people. And so what we're saying to Life Labs is it is time to put people before profits, especially in healthcare. And Life Labs as a company, I mean, they've been operating. It's not like this is a new company. This is a company that's been operating for more than five decades. So have, has something changed recently? Um, you know, again, I, I don't have sort of the historical context of what might have changed. I know that Life Labs took over BC Biomedical in 2013. Um, you know, this is a, a cross-Canada company. They, they represent, um, you know, obviously they have employees in Ontario, Saskatchewan, um, other provinces. Um, I, I honestly couldn't say what has changed. What we do know, though, is that it is time for Life Labs to understand that our members um, have real solidarity around this and they want to see a fair deal. Uh, if, if that doesn't happen in the 72 hours, I understand from the company uh, that they are designated as an essential service. So uh, they expect that the labs will continue operating, hopefully operating as normal. Do you think that's possible, though, if this, this strike notice expires and workers start taking part in job action? Well, we've done essential service levels negotiating with the employer. We are in a legal um, position to action the strike vote. So there will be impact to the Life Labs. And um, for all of your listeners, what I strongly suggest now, obviously, hospital labs, public labs will remain open. We represent about 94 out of the approximately 130 Life Labs here in BC. So the non-union Life Labs will remain open. But for up-to-date information of how job action may be impacting a Life Labs, 
I strongly recommend that listeners go to um, a microsite that we are setting up. It's lifelabs.bcgu.ca, and that will have the most up-to-date information of any job action that may be occurring at a Life Lab Centre. All right. Stephanie Smith, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us for this update. Thank you so very much for having me, Jill. Appreciate it. Well, if you've been following along with the news, you know that the Fraser Health Authority is now seeking an injunction to close a restaurant that is located in Hope, B.C. It's a restaurant that is openly defying COVID-19 health orders. That case was in court earlier today in documents filed in B.C. Supreme Court. Fraser Health is stating that the application against the owners of Rowley's restaurant uh, has been filed and we're expecting that that case is going to continue this afternoon. The restaurant has already had its business and liquor licenses suspended. That's because the owners are refusing to check the diner's vaccine certificates, the immunization status, which is now required under the BC Vaccine Card Program. So talking more about this now with Ian Tostenson, the CEO and president of the BC Restaurant and Food Association. Ian, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. How are you doing? Uh, well, how about you? Good. Uh, I'm a little perplexed, though, why... A business would want to put themselves in jeopardy like this. I mean, they've been in business for so many years. They've been a mainstay in hope, and and and, and why they're going to? They mean they're going to be closed? And I just don't know. I can't understand it. Uh, I know one of the owners was on the Roy Green show on this station on the weekend and brought up the point saying, look, we live in a jurisdiction where there are low vaccination rates. There are truck drivers that have no other options. And they were kind of justifying it that way, saying they were staying open to provide this business. And and also they didn't feel that they should be the ones that they needed to be the enforcers of this public health order. Well, I guess we never get improvement if we all took that point of view. Because, um, I mean, you know, restaurants have proven to be safe. Restaurants are taking a vaccination card, not because, you know, um, um, you know, because of an unsafe situation, but it was designed to encourage the public to get vaccinated. So they go, I can't go to a hockey game or a restaurant unless I get vaccinated. And for that, we were able to keep the industry open and keep it stable. And it's working out very well. So, to not be part of that community, there's there are restaurants in Hope that are you know doing it correctly, and there are places in Hope that you know truck drivers uh, don't need to um, show a vaccination card like quick service restaurants. So I don't buy that. I think that um, I think their business would have been fine. I think Hope. So you know we are seeing though is that when you have communities that have less vaccination, we are having more problems like the north where there's more you know over fifty percent. Um, are vaccinated, you still have a large market that aren't vaccinated and you lose your customers. So it's it's a tough one, but I think that hope is not that bad and I think they would have been fine. Uh, I want to play for you just a short clip. And again, this was Muriel Young, uh, one of the managing partners at Roley's Restaurant in Hope, speaking to Roy Green uh, when Roy said to her, why not just ask for the vaccine certificate, do what other restaurants are doing, and avoid all of this. And this was her response. Because your health status is none of my business. I don't need to know what your health status is, whether or not you've been circumcised or or have have had COVID taught. It's none of my business. How do you reason with with somebody Uh, who that's her response? I'm blushing. Has got you know. I mean, th- th- that comparison is ridiculous. Um, I think it's a justification. 
you know, I was thinking uh, if they did take and did it properly just by asking, they're not asking any health information, just asking, have you had a vaccination? It's got nothing to do whether you've had been circumcised or anything else for that matter. But, you know, there's a, still a large market that, in hope that are vaccinated and they're forgetting that. It's fine for them to argue that, you know, we have to play to the unvaccinated, but um, there's a large market that would probably love going to that restaurant. It is a very home restaurant. I drove by it a couple of weeks ago and I was going to go and I thought, no, that's not a very good idea because I'll probably get you know thrown out. But uh, there's a market, you know, that, that are with people with double, double vaccinated would probably love to go to that restaurant and they would sustain themselves for a long time. They are a, a good employer. I think they have, you know, 20 or 30 employees in that place. Now, with this court injunction that's likely going to get approved, I would think, all those people will be out of a job. I just don't, I, again, I don't see that it's worth it. Uh, and I know in court today as well, the owner's daughter uh, asked for an adjournment saying that they need more time to get legal representation and to review the case. Uh, I mean, it seems unless somebody is doing the case pro bono, it seems like they're going to be spending a whole lot of money fighting this in court. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think those are just stall tactics. I mean, you know, um, the, the simplest way is just to, you know, we had this situation, a uh, business in Penticton, they started off and it was like, rah, rah, and we're going to defy this, and this is not right. And then in about four days, they changed direction. They came out and said to the, the community, which we serve, we're very sorry for this. We we want to be part of the community and be part of, you know, helping get rid of COVID. So, um, you know, asking for stalls and stuff, I think enough is enough. They have had uh, a visit there almost every single day because they've been fined every day by the uh, Fraser Health Authorities. And we were on a call today with government, and they have really tried. And they're not happy about having to be forced to do this. They've tried every way to bring this business into compliance. So this is not just like, we don't like you, we're going to close you. They've been working for weeks. And to our frustration as an industry, we're sort of saying, can you get on with it here? Because that just puts a negative spotlight on the thousands of businesses. You had Brad McLeod on the other day. Guys like Brad that are you know, that are committed to doing it the right way, and it's, there's no place at it. So people get mad when they say they should be closed, but they've been given so many opportunities, and now they want to stall it. I think they should just get on with it. I would welcome them back. I'd be happy to help them get reestablished, but um, I think this is a very this is a deep philosophical belief that they have, not a practical one. Do you know of any other restaurants that are taking a hard stance like this? Not to that extent. Um, the uh, the one in Penticton is is reversed. The one in Kelowna, there was a nice name, Renegade Cafe, um, and they took a hard stance. They were closed until they were selling their business. Um, so that's the only other one that's been sort of, they were very defiant. And again, um, they had a nice little business. They started off with a food truck, and but they decided that their market in Kelowna, because it's not quite as vaccinated as we are here, um, that was going to serve them well. That was the market they wanted to serve. But, you know, it, it's, these things don't end well. We've been saying that since the beginning of this. If, if that's what you're going to do, these are this is a health order. Do we want to be taking a vaccination card? No, we don't want to be doing it, but we will do it. It's the right thing to do. And, um, you know, and, and as we said at the beginning, for those that want to defy it openly, um, it, 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 it won't end well. Now, the government has done 1,200 uh, they've had 1,200 complaints. They've investigated uh, almost 900. They've issued closure orders for um, four businesses. Um, so I don't know the other who the other two are. Um, they've issued violation tickets to about 20. 
and they've put out about 60 warning letters. So they're on they're on top of this. And our frustration was, is can you go a bit faster? Their point of view is we want to be fair and we want to make sure that we've exhausted all avenues of being reasonable before we shut down a person's you know, business. And I agree with that. I mean, this business and hope has been there for many, many years. And I feel, I feel terrible that they're, they'll be closed, I think, but um, they have the control of this. They, they could change this and they refuse to do it. All right, Ian, we'll leave it there. Thanks again so much for coming back on the show. Thanks, Jill. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Well, we've been talking about the annual rate of inflation in this country, and it's reached its highest level since 2003, That uh, reaching that last month. That was revealed earlier today from Statistics Canada, the agency saying that the consumer price index up 4.4% in September. That's compared with a 4.1% year-over-year increase in August. So what's driving this? Well, gasoline prices, but food prices are also a big factor. And joining us to talk a bit more about this is Janet Music, Program Coordinator at the School of Information Management at Dalhousie University. Janet, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. When we look at some of the food prices, again, year over year, looking at meat prices up about 9.5%, edible fats, oils, the percentage increases are in the double digits. What is driving this? Yeah, I mean, we we often talk about meat prices because those are the big ticket items that generally most of us are paying at retail in the grocery store. But there's a number of factors that are driving these increases. And you mentioned gasoline prices, which is absolutely a factor. But there's also some of those other uh, transportation factors such as bottlenecking along the supply chain. So, you know, ships aren't just getting through ports like they were pre-COVID. And there's also border restrictions that are, you know, because of COVID-19 that are still in place that are slowing down some of those, maybe not the meat itself, but maybe the packaging that we find the meat in. And of course, you know, we can't discount climate change. And so, you know, out west, there was the drought-like conditions on the prairies and of course, wildfires in BC. And these things are really making harvest time difficult this time around. And so, you know, if you're thinking about meat um, and you're thinking about drought, it, maybe you're thinking, well, they don't take that much water, but they really do. And so farmers will have to shrink the size, size of their herds. So, you know, supply is down. So, and that's really affecting prices. Is in and one of the issues there as well. When you think about meat, you're right. We might not make that link to the amount of water, but also feed. And I know there was there were issues again with drought and with less feed being produced. And how do you feed herds or how do you feed cattle if you don't have that food for them? Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes we have that, you know, our global trading partners. So we're getting some of that feed from international sources. And it's been difficult growing season across the globe. And so not just in Canada, but, you know, California experienced a lot of wildfires, floods in China and in in Europe and drought-like conditions across the northern hemisphere. And when we were talking about meat going up, and uh, there was also the report out today saying the biggest gains in food purchased, so about 4.2% up when we're talking about food purchased in store, followed by about 3.1% followed by that food purchased in restaurants. Are there other areas where we're seeing those big gains as far as food prices? 
Well, I mean, those are the major places where we, you know, shop for food. And I think as COVID-19 comes to an end, hopefully, we're all hoping that sooner rather than later, we're seeing demand go up, right? So people, you know, as we meet our vaccine thresholds or people are more comfortable going out in public, demand at the restaurant has skyrocketed. And so we've been talking a lot about labor shortages or disruption in labor mismatch of people who want to work in food service, but, or, you know, are not working in food service. But those raw inputs that we, they, you know, they buy at retail as well, those prices are increasing. So, you know, rising food costs affect us all, regardless of our income, because we all have to eat. But if you're making your living in retail or restaurants, then you're kind of getting hit twice. Hmm. Uh, from what I'm looking at as well, too, looking at t- some pretty big jumps when we're talking, uh, we've mentioned meat, but also talking about dairy products, uh, cheese products, eggs, all of them up uh, anywhere from 4.6% to 6.3%, which when you're looking at a, at a total grocery bill, say a grocery bill for a family of whatever size, that's going to be a significant increase. That's right. And and in the center of the store as well. So, you know, those you mentioned cooking oils, I think earlier, um, up 27% in some cases, cookies, noodles, all of those canned pastas, all of those things that we, you know, take for granted, they're all increasing in price. And so it's people aren't imagining their grocery bills going up. They absolutely are. Why would it be, I'm glad you brought up the cooking oil again, why would we see such a big increase in that particular product? Well, there's a number of reasons. And so, you know, it could be the source of the oil itself, experience some labor disruptions um, due to COVID or, you know, again, drought-like conditions for their harvest. But there's also this problem this lingering problem with disruptions in the supply chain and so the packaging itself might be difficult to get and so if your shipment of bottles is stuck in a port somewhere you know in the Suez Canal well you're going to have a shortage of product and so that increases prices across the board and and it's it's kind of playing out for olive oil or cooking oil for whatever reason Uh, Do you think or do we have any information that shows that that kind of a price hike does change consumer behavior, whether out of necessity, you simply can't afford it or people just don't want to pay that much more? Yeah, so, you know, some products are easier to switch out than others. And so maybe you don't, you know, if olive oil is has increased exponentially in price, it's you can replace that with other things um, in your cooking. Some things are harder to do that. So if you think eggs, for example, it's harder to replace eggs. It's not impossible. You can do it. Um, so if if a product has something that's easy to switch to and people know how to use it or, you know, bring it into their, their diet at home, then people will change their behavior to do that. And I think when we just recently did a survey of Canadians, uh, we talked to about 10,000 Canadians and people are starting to, uh, you know, price compare with flyers a little bit more. And so they're not just going on a Saturday morning and getting, you know, their load of groceries. They're breaking it up through the week to kind of hit those sales. 
and couponing as well, right? So everything old is kind of new again. And so people are just looking for those deals and, and going to the meat counter and trying to get those Enjoy Tonight stickers where you can kind of get, you know, 30 to 50% off. So really, you know, trying to impact their wallets in a positive way by being more creative about how they shop and where they shop and when they shop. And do we know kind of at what point will things calm down? I I know there are a lot of different factors for that, but people will hear those numbers or see those numbers and think, well, this can't continue indefinitely. There's going to have to be a plateauing or, or some kind of relief. One one would hope. Um, So, you know, I don't know in the short term that we're going to see a drastic drop in prices. Um, Certainly COVID-19 is going to come to an end. Um, And, you know, shipping bottlenecks are going to clear out and we're going to have, you know, loosening of restrictions for travel across borders. We're already seeing that. So that will will positively impact prices uh, and people will notice that. But in terms of adverse weather, It's difficult to say if that's going to peter out or not and how uh, producers, farmers and and herders are going to uh, react to those new pressures and how they're going to change their production processes so that food is more readily available and a bit cheaper. So in the short term, I I think not. In, In the medium term, I'm hopeful. All right. Well, I think a a lot of people would agree and and are also hopeful uh, that we will see that. Janet, thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.